Thanks for coming. Uh, let's open with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day, the privilege and opportunity of gathering together for your worship and to study your word. We ask that, O Lord, that you would bless that study now for your glory and for our own good. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So last time we were doing an introduction to talk about the class, and then we started talking about, uh, uh, we used the last part of the class uh, to consider some passages in the New Testament that implicate the questions of whether Israel and the church are in fact two separate peoples of God. We looked at Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, which describes the people of God as a single household. Moses is faithful servant in the house. Jesus Christ is over the house. And we are the house, showing the unity of the people of God across both testaments. We also looked at Romans 11. Uh, and there, the people of God is represented as a single olive tree. And whether you're a Jew or you're gent- Jew or a Gentile, you are united to that olive tree by virtue of faith. So the believing Jew is a part of the vine. A believing Gentile is a part of the vine. And whether you're Jew or Gentile, you're born into the covenant community, but you're unbelieving, you're broken off. So that's true whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. Um, and by, before we're done, we'll talk about an implication from that. I had a question after class uh, about what that could imply, for instance, about election. So we'll bri- briefly touch on that before we leave, because it's a good question. We also saw that Stephen, in Acts 7, calls the Old Testament people the ecclesia, which is the word of choice of the, uh, in the New Testament for church, And we finished by beginning to discuss that Christ is himself the true Israelite. Christ is himself Israel, true and faithful Israel, and those united to him as branches to an olive tree or a vine. And in John 15, he calls himself the true vine. So we thought, well, why is he making this reference? There's not a lot of explanation to these, his Jewish audience, what he means by this, but it wasn't necessary because they're steeped in their Old Testaments. And in the Old Testament, Israel is called a vine in several places. Uh, we looked at Psalm 80. We looked at Jeremiah 2. And we saw that Israel's called the vine. And Jesus comes along and calls himself the true vine. That's the association for his audience. They would make that connection. He's claiming to be the true embodiment of Israel. And that's where we left off, if if memory serves. So before we continue uh, looking at some passages that communicate to us that Jesus is the true and knew Israel and all those united to him. Before we continue in that, uh, are there any questions for clarification about what we talked about last week? Questions that occurred to you? Okay. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Hosea. Now, I know that your homework, if you had a chance to uh, look at the passage ahead of time, 
was in Hosea as well. But we'll be looking at Hosea 6 to see something particular about uh, Jesus being true Israel. Hosea heads up the 12 prophets, we call the minor prophets, not because of the lack of importance, but because their books are smaller than the great, greater prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. So Hosea 6, let's look at verses 1 and 2. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Raised on the third day. Do you recall how Jesus claimed that the scriptures of the Old Testament insist that the Messiah must suffer, that is, die, and be raised from the dead on the third day. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, for instance, our Lord says, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead. But did you know, were you aware of the fact, that there's no place in the scripture that explicitly says, the Messiah must suffer, and after three days be raised from the dead? Our Lord says that the scriptures say that. But can anybody point the rest of the class to that passage or passages that explicitly teach that? And you can't. And so for a people steeped in their Old Testaments, and for us, we have to ask, well, where in the Old Testament is he talking about? Do the Old Testament scriptures talk about this? And I believe this is the strongest candidate right here. But look at the language. When it says, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. Who's he talking about? The writer. What's Hosea talking about here? To whom is he referring when he says us? Israel. And it says, in, in essence, that Israel has been struck by God. And after three days, we'll be raised up that we may live before him. So like I said, this is the only explicit reference in the Old Testament to anybody being raised from the dead on the third day. So we, I believe that this is referring to our Lord. But it refers to him in terms of his being Israel. Now, what about the us and the we? Does that confuse the matter? Does that muddy the water a little? I don't think it does, but why wouldn't it? Would I be right to say that it doesn't muddy the water? Because of our union with Christ. Because Christ not only sums up in himself the people of God, but all those who are united by him. There's an organic connection between the vine and the branches, between the tree and the branches, isn't there? It's a living connection. The living bond between us and Christ is the Holy Spirit. And so, 
it makes sense in the plural as well. And we'll see that in Galatians before we're done talking about this and moving on to the course proper. Any questions about that? As we can see, it is Israel that hopes in such a resurrection. It is Israel that relies on the third day, apparently from the dead. So, referring back to the gospel, to our Lord's way of thinking, this passage has its reference and its fulfillment in him. All right, let's stay in Hosea and go to chapter 11. This one's very interesting. Hosea 11 and verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt... I called my son. Now let's go to Matthew 2.15. Going off to the New Testament now. Matthew, right at the beginning of the Gospels. Chapter 2, verse 15. I'll start at 14. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew interprets and applies language in Hosea describing Israel's exodus. And he applies it to the Lord's experiences as a child. That's an obvious connection, isn't it? But what's curious about this, I mean, the case is made, I think, that the New Testament writers see Jesus as the embodiment of Israel. They're identifying his experiences with theirs. But it goes on. It's, it's very interesting. It says, fulfilled. In Hosea that we were just looking at, is that a prophecy? Is Hosea 11.1 1 a prophecy? It's, it's a historical narrative section. It's in a prophet, but it's historical narrative. And so we have to sort of adjust our thinking about what the Old Testament is doing and what we categorize things at, because according to the New Testament writers, the history of Israel is also, not just prophecies being fulfilled in the New Testament in Christ, but the history of Israel is, according to Matthew, fulfilled in Christ. Isn't that interesting? So Jesus, according to Scripture, is true Israel, who sums up in himself the entire people of God. Jesus Christ is the true vine. Jesus Christ is the Israel raised on the third day of Hosea 6. And Jesus Christ was the Israel, Matthew says, was brought up from Egypt. When Joseph and Mary brought Jesus up from Egypt, this fulfills Hosea 11.1, 1, which describes Israel's exodus from Egypt. Consider as well that according to the accounts in Matthew and Mark, this is a separate argument, all three of Christ's responses to Satan's temptations. Remember when he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit and was tempted three times by, by Satan. 
all three of Christ's responses to temptations are quotations from a point in the Old Testament where Israel is undergoing its own temptation in the wilderness. How did they do their temptations in the wilderness? They did not do well. They failed. Christ comes along as the new and true Israel, the true embodiment of the people of God, who sums up in himself the whole people of God, Old Testament and New Testament. He passes the temptation. He passes the test. Uh, there's a great article out there that I read where that was that, that was drawn to my attention. It's by R.T. France, Old Testament Prophecy and the Future of Israel, a study of the teaching of Jesus. If you're interested in that article, I could forward it to you. It's a Tyndale Bulletin article. So are there any questions so far? Yes? Yes? That part of Hosea is narrative. Because the exodus of Israel had happened a long time prior to Hosea's ministry. So he's describing, out of Israel I called my son. That's backward-looking, isn't it? For Hosea, that's many generations previous. So that's a backward-looking passage. He's not saying, behold, the Lord, thus saith the Lord, I'm going to draw my son out of Israel. He's referring to Israel's history. And then Matthew turns around and he says, guess what? That's fulfilled in Christ. Well, I wouldn't want to say it's two genres at once, but I would say this, that for Hosea and his audience, his immediate audience, it was history, plain and simple. Now, through the lens of the New Testament, we've no choice as his church but to accept that even the history of Israel has reference to Christ. And, in a sense, his experience and ours united to him is a fulfillment in some sense of the exodus The Scarlet Thread is the Rahab incident in specifics. But, go ahead, John. No, 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 go ahead. Well, I was just going to say after that that uh, there's, a, there's a part of the Old Testament in Joshua where Rahab uh, hangs a scarlet thread out. And some people have said um, that represents the blood of Christ uh, as a type. But it doesn't really satisfy the criteria as a type. So there's one sense in which a person could ask me a question about the scarlet thread. That's one. I imagine there's another reason that you're asking that. No, no. Okay. Yes, John. How about you referring to what had become known as the scarlet thread of redemption through the Old Testament, which was W.A. Criswell's way of referring to the fact that the Old Testament predates and foreshadows Christ. Okay. Was that kind of what you were asking about? Or? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'd say sure. Um, but not having read Criswell's uh, thoughts on the subject, I'd probably just be speculating. Any other questions? 
Okay, so the point of all of this is that the New Testament teaches us to understand that Christ is the new Israel. The true Israel, as well as, the who, who, as, well as those who are united to him by faith. As members are united to a body, like an arm to the body. As the body is united to its head. And as a bride is one flesh with her husband. So Christ sums up in himself all the people of God, all believers in God, and his anointed. That is what the Messiah means, is anointed one. That is true whether the believer is a Jew or a Gentile, whether one's a member of the Ecclesia of the Old Testament, as uh, Stephen would put it, or the Ecclesia of the New Testament. So this is critical for understanding where we're coming from in covenant theology as opposed to where they're coming from in dispensational theology. The New Testament, we believe, has redefined Israel. You cannot understand this redefinition of what it means to be Israel if you had no New Testament. In the New Testament, it's the Lord Jesus Christ and those who are in him, united to him by grace through faith. So that's an important thing to understand. They think that Israel retains its Old Testament definitions. In the last two weeks, I've read two books about dispensationalism. I got two more to read. Um, none of them have really been attacking. I had one little one. I was going to bring it today and do a show and tell. Um, Poitras' book, Understanding Dispensationalists. I was entertaining the idea of buying one for every household that attends the study. But I believe we have one or two in the library as well. That was excellent. It's a very uh, nice way of addressing the differences between our view and the dispensationalist view. Arenic is what the scholars would say, very peaceful. And then I read one about uh, a comparison from by Baptist of covenant versus dispensationalism and three variations of each. I just finished that one last night. The next two are on progressive dispensationalism uh, by progressive dispensationalists. So within dispensationalism, there are various schools, old school dispensationalism, C.I. Schofield, Dabney in England, and uh, Lewis Perry Schaefer, um, who started DTS, uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. They're the classic dispensationalists. And then there is progressive dispensationalists. There's some actually between the two called revised dispensationalists. That's like Ryrie and Walvoord. Um, I think the progressives is progressing towards covenant theology, if you ask my opinion. That's, that's a good term for progressive dispensationalism. But uh, I've been reading up on it so that when you do have questions about it, uh, I, can, I can better answer them. Um, but the point I wanted to make is uh, a central difference between the two, between covenant theology, if you're going to lump all those who believe that there's a great deal of continuity between the Old and New Testaments, into covenant theologians and lump into dispensationalist all those who believe that discontinuity is what really characterizes the relationship between Old Testament and New Testament. Old covenant people of God, New covenant people of God. The main issues, generally speaking, is this idea of a distinction between Israel and the church and in the area of interpretation hermeneutics and 
I made references to those books because the more I read about it, the more I understand the central issues, and I'm still growing in my knowledge. Um, and we have plenty of time until December uh, for me to, you know, read these other books. But the separation of Israel and the church, and um, this issue of interpretation. And throughout the class, uh, I'll, we'll, we'll tease those out. And how we, you know, uh, the covenant theologians and how dispensationalists handle Old Testament texts will bring out, I'll make, I'll make a point to bring out the differences in approach uh, to interpretation of those Old Testament prophecies. Old Testament prophecies mainly having to do with the restoration of Israel, oftentimes to, to uh, the land of Israel, always to God's favor. Yes? Yeah, the central thing that makes a dispensationalist read the Bible the way he does and look at the same text that we look at and come up with a very different conclusion is the notion, and this is central, that if we don't read the Old Testament prophets literally, then we don't have a Bible we can trust. We're basically running off into allegorizing scripture like the liberals do and just nullifying it. But the question becomes, and I broached this last time, who's going to interpret the New Old Testament for us if we don't let the apostles interpret the Old Testament for us? There's a, a Reformation principle called Scripture interprets Scripture. Scriptura, Scripturae, interprets. Scripture is the interpreter of Scripture. And we believe in not only that principle, but also in the progressive nature of Revelation. Adam's generation, his son's generation, even Moses' generation, they know less. They knew less about the coming Messiah than we now know after his having come, worked his great work of redemption, and had that work of redemption and his person interpreted for us by the apostles and written down and bequeathed to the church. So the concept here is that God reveals truth to his people progressively over this millennia. And that not only increases the grand total of amount of revelation that the church has, but it also increases in quality. We have greater clarity because of what the apostles are giving us than what the prophets gave us in shadowy types and oftentimes symbolic language. And another thing to remember is the New Testament says that the, that the prophets didn't always understand what they were writing about. And they moved in the world. And even during our, the incarnation of our Lord, he operated in the same sort of prophetic, prophetic sphere. What I mean is their horizon, as it were, was limited by their place in redemptive history to the people of Israel. They understood Israel in genetic terms and uh, in the terms of circumcision, who's inside and who's outside of the covenant. You're outside of the covenant, you're damned. You're not part of the people of God. And 
in earlier phases of redemptive history, it was centered upon Jerusalem and its temple, sacrificial system. So that was the atmosphere in which the prophets operated. So when they would see things that were given to them to understand through a kind of, uh, well, you could see how, unless it was explicitly told to them, what was told later to the apostles by the Holy Spirit, they would see everything in terms of Israel. See. Um, like when our Lord, he's still operating in that, in that environment, that prophetic way of looking at things, when he says, you know, you will not go through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man returns. It's a kind of prophetic, at that point in redemptive history, of viewing divine revelation about uh, the return of our Lord. And it was always in terms, up until the, prophet, uh, the apostles could redefine everything for us, in terms of the physical offspring of Abraham. But we'll, we'll have a chance over the next couple of months to talk about that more often, uh, more uh, probably. Let's move on. Um, so the New Testament has not only redefined what it means to be Israel. We could not understand Israel the way we're intended to, but for the New Testament. We would still be walking around thinking that you know, Israel was this people who lived there in this area, this holy land, and, and uh, that's, that's Israel. And then the rest of us are the nations. Um, the New Testament comes along and redefines Israel for us. You need the New Testament to redefine Israel the way we are in covenant theology. If you read the Old Testament without the New Testament, it, it's a slam dunk. You should be a dispensationalist because of their hermeneutic. But if you're reading the Old Testament and understanding those prophecies the way the New Testament does, the way the apostolic writers do, you would be a covenant theologian. Now, we'll notice as we go through, we're dealing with several passages in the Old Testament throughout this class, and we'll see how the apostles interpret them. Dispensationalism is invulnerable as a system. And the reason why it's invulnerable as a system is because at every point when the apostle interprets an Old Testament passage, the dispensational can answer, well, that's a partial fulfillment. The future fulfillment is later. It's already happened when Israel went to, back to the land in 1948, or it's going to be fulfilled in the millennium. Okay. So everywhere an apostle tells us this is fulfilled in this way, that's fulfilled in that way. Dispensationalism can always just make that qualification and say, sure, that's an application of that text, or that's a partial fulfillment of that text, but it's not the fulfillment, because the fulfillment can only be fulfilled in the people of Israel, because that's what the prophets said. You see the difference. That's critical to understanding where we're coming from. There's two different schools of approaching the question of how to interpret the Old Testament. In, in, in effect, Dispensationalism is a, a dispensationalist is a person who approaches the New Testament through the lens of the Old Testament. The Old Testament dictates how we are to interpret the New Testament. We do the exact opposite because we believe in progressive revelation. 
and that the apostles help us to, uh, to understand the Old Testament, not the other way around. Um, we read the Old Testament through the New Testament. We interpret the prophets by the apostles, not the reverse. Okay. So the New Testament's not only redefined national Israel to be Christ and the church, but also that the New Testament, we also assert that the New Testament has redefined Jewishness. Turn with me to Romans 2, 28 and 29. Romans 2. Last couple of verses of Romans 2. Now this is an apostle telling us something that I think is important to understand. We would not know this but for this kind of language in the New Testament. For uh, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. Who does the New Testament teach? We'll move to another passage quickly. Keep that one in mind. Jewishness is defined by heart circumcision now, regeneration. That's what heart circumcision is in Old and New Testament. It's about being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So who does the New Testament teach as the offspring of Abraham? Let's turn to Galatians 3. Let's start at verse 16. Just verse 16. Galatians 3.16 Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his, his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring who is Christ. This is another passage that redefines who the sons of Abraham are. Is that a fair read? Okay. Well, he's used to talking to Jews and being a Jew himself, he was always thinking of to your offspring as who? National Israel, a, a plurality, right? But he corrects and he says, wrong. It's referring to Christ. He says that, doesn't he? So when you think of Israel, you think of the seed of Abraham, don't be thinking plural. You need to be thinking singular. It's Christ. Okay, well, let's go to verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now he's back to dealing it with plural again. Isn't it? So, 
he wants us to understand the sons of Abraham now, not only as the seed, singular, who is Christ, but there is a plural aspect to the sons of Abraham, isn't there? And what makes a son of Abraham now, if you're not personally Jesus Christ? And if you are of Christ, Christ's, possess it. You see? So, that's really interesting. So the New Testament tells us, not only about the nation of Israel, Jesus is the true vine, okay, and those other passages we looked at. Fulfilling the Old Testament in surprising ways, etc. But it also redefines what it means to be a Jew. It's no longer, as it always has been understood to be defined, by circumcision coming into the covenant community or being raised in it, circumcised too, if you're a male of co- male member of the covenant. That's how it used to be defined. Now it's Christ and those united to him by faith. But it goes on to say Jewishness now must be understood in new terms as well. It's an internal thing. It's by regeneration by the Holy Spirit. And you're a son of Abraham. by virtue of your union with Christ. Okay. Any questions about that? I don't think we're going to get to the uh, lesson one proper where we look at those Hosea passages I talked about, but maybe we will. Let's, we might get started. Because I wanted to deal with that question I was asked after the cl- class last week. Let's go to Romans 11. Verses 19 to 21, we'll limit it to that. Romans 11, verses 19 to 21. He tells these Gentile believers united to Christ, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Uh, For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. So I mentioned this earlier, that um, union to the olive tree is effected by a spirit-worked faith. That t- that, that's the case whether you're born as a Jew, speaking phenomenologically, or born a Gentile. Um, so, let's see, that's what I wanted to say, or I'm, re- I'm rehearsing what I said earlier about that. Um, it's faith that unites you, unbelief that gets you broken off. But what about election? What about God's sovereign election, which we teach, which our confession teaches? Can you be a true believer in Jesus and then be broken off? Because later on, you don't believe. And I think the answer is no. If you look at this passage, it's talking about if you have faith, you're united. If you suffer from a condition of unbelief, if you're an actually un- unbeliever, 
you're broken off. Now, here's the thing. We have to understand a distinction in the scripture between the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church is what you see around you in the pews right now, and then when we're worshiping together, it's what, what's happening across the street at that church over there, um, as far as I know. Um, it's all part of the visible church. Now, we do not maintain that simply by virtue of being a member, you go before the elders, you get interviewed, or you do a reaffirmation of faith, what have you. We do not hold that every person that comes into the church and becomes a member is regenerate that they have true faith. We all know that probably by experience. We've seen family members fall away who've been raised in the church, or we've heard about friends and family, who, you know, extended family who have. And if we look at the Old Testament, we understand that that was a large covenant community, and there were many unfaithful people in it. King Ahab, I mean, the list, which I could just go on and on and on. Esau, Ishmael, we could just go on and on. They, had, they bore the signs of the covenant. They were circumcised. Just like in the New Testament, members come in and they're baptized doesn't guarantee, does it, that they're regenerate and that they have a true faith. So if you believe, that reflects regeneration and you're, you're attached to the tree, the olive tree here in this passage. If you don't believe, you're broken off. Interestingly, going back, let's go back to John 15 for a moment. John 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Reading down to four, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Going down to... Six, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch, and it withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Okay, so this is talking about the visible church as well. Because it says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit is broken off and thrown into the fire. There are people in the visible church who are united to Christ, but only by the sacraments. They're united to Christ externally. Anyone who comes into the church is united to him either simply by virtue of the sacraments in an external sense. They've been baptized, right? That's the sign of admission into our covenant community. They've received the Lord's Supper, possibly, if they're of the right age. So in that sense, they are in Christ by virtue of being members of the visible church. But it's only those who are both that and actually united to Christ by the Spirit that bear fruit. And those are the branches that abide. They don't fall away. Even if they have a varied experience as a Christian, which is all of our experience as Christians has been varied in spiritual uh, ups and downs. Uh, but ultimately... Um, you abide in him. If you're united to him by the Holy Spirit. So when Paul writes this way, he, he writes to the to covenant community the same way 
any writer, the writer to the epistle to the Hebrew of the, of the epistle to the Hebrews, many of the prophets, they're talking to a covenant community that's a mixed multitude. They're talking to a covenant community that is a mixture of regenerate and unregenerate members, right? So he's going to talk about being broken off the way our Lord talks about being broken off. Same sort of imagery, being broken off a living, organic thing, namely Christ, by virtue of unbelief and cast out and into the fire. And it's important to understand this, this distinction in the scripture between the visible and in the invisible church and to understand that covenant is a larger circle than election. If you had a Venn diagram, if I had a little whiteboard, I would draw this. I'd draw a large circle and say, this is the visible church. This is the covenant community. The people who have received circumcision in the Old Testament, people who have received baptism in the New Testament, they're in the visible church. They're in this big circle. And then I put a little circle in there inside of it. And I would say that's the invisible church. Those who are united to Christ, not only by virtue of baptism and the Lord's Supper, but also by virtue of a real genuine faith that was sown in their hearts after it was regenerated or at the same time, what have you. Um, logically consequent to being uh, regenerated uh, is the invisible church, that, little, that littlest, littler circle, smaller circle within the larger circle. So when Paul writes to the covenant community, he's going to talk this way, the same way that everybody in the Bible talks. When they're talking to the covenant community as a whole, keep that distinction in mind. And it will help keep you from getting tripped up and thinking this somehow implicates election. Election's a smaller circle than covenant. Okay? Okay, we've got four minutes. Uh, okay. R.L. Dabney has some good stuff in there about, in his writings, I can't remember which, probably his systematic theology, about uh, union to Christ, but solely by virtue of the sacraments. Not a living sort of bond with Christ by the Holy Spirit that will result in fruit, fruitfulness. Are there any questions about anything that we just said before we take a three-minute dive into the first lesson, unless you all want to get up early and run around on the playground. It depends on which group you're talking about. Uh, I believe that the progressive dispensationalists veer towards the belief that if you're in the church, you're saved. That they don't make that distinction. And other people make that distinction inside the church as well. But we believe that the scriptures are clear on that. We could go on and on about that just as a subject of study in itself. If you go back and somehow find the ecclesiology class that I taught for Sunday school, that's a substantial part of that class. It's because it's so important to understanding the sacraments is to have a correct doctrine of the church and vice versa. To understand what the sacraments are doing and not doing helps you understand the distinction between the visible and invisible church. We don't, as a denomination, believe in baptismal regeneration. We don't believe that everybody in the visible church is necessarily saved. By a judgment of charity, we believe that everyone who does not you know, undermine the conclusion by a course of sinful conduct and unrepentance for it, we just assume that everyone is regenerate until they you know, prove, prove otherwise or fall away. 
but I wish I could answer your question with more authority. Maybe after I read those two other books, I can, uh, I can do that. Any other questions before we move on? I guess we're not even going to start. But um, next time we will, because we've gotten rid of all of these other affairs I wanted to discuss first. Uh, Christ is the new Israel. Jewishness has been redefined. And by the way, that fact that Christ is the new Israel, and that fact that Jewishness has been redefined is the bone in the throat of dispensationalism. Because the apostles are teaching us not just how these prophecies of the Old Testament are being partially fulfilled, they're also going on and telling us Jesus is Israel, and if you're united to him, you're, you're an Israelite, and you're a child of Abraham and an heir of the promises given to Abraham by virtue of being united to Christ. So it makes dispensationalism that much harder to believe in when you appreciate what the apostles are saying, not just about the fulfillment of prophecies, and we'll get to those one at a time, maybe one per class. But we'll also, oh, we also have to acknowledge that the apostles have redefined Israel. They've redefined what it means to be a Jew. And if we go back to the old definitions, we're operating in a, an interpretive environment without the benefit of the New Testament. That's not an interpretive environment that I want to be a part of because I want the scriptures to interpret the scriptures rather than go to the scriptures with an assumption which creates my overriding, overarching interpretive principle. Unless the, the prophets can be interpreted literally. Literal Israel coming to a literal land, that, that kind of thing. Unless they can be interpreted literally, we have a Bible that doesn't make sense. We can't believe God's promises. But if you don't come to the Bible with that assumption, if you just let the, the Bible interpret itself, the New Testament, the latest revelation, interpret the oldest, let it speak for itself rather than coming to it with an external principle you've created then there's no issue. You'll just be a covenant theologian like us. We argue. We argue. There's smart people on the other side, but I think that starting from that hermeneutical principle gets them off the rails. And then any time the, the New Testament talks about the Old Testament, they're reduced to saying that's a partial fulfillment. It can only be fulfilled in literal Israel in the millennium, or it was in 1948, maybe in part. There's no need to parse the apostles that way unless you've started with that hermeneutical principle. It has to be literal or we can't trust the Bible. I think we let the Bible speak for itself. I'll close with this. The New Testament is the only divine interpretation we have of the Old Testament. Every theologian, no matter how good he is, that goes more on the dispensational side, can be as good as God. So for us to start with their principle and say, sorry, apostles, that's not the fulfillment. There must be a fulfillment later. That's something we brought to the, to the game. We brought that assumption into the game, and it's dictating to us how we're to interpret the New Testament. I believe we should let the Holy Spirit by the apostles interpret the Old Testament for us. And that's, that's a huge distinction between the two schools of thought. And I think that's a fair way of putting it. 
And I also think that's something that dispensational brothers and sisters should consider. And with that, since we're two minutes over, let's go ahead and close with prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the New Testament. We thank you that we can now interpret those promises and prophecies as being fulfilled and summed up in Christ and in his church. The church that spans both testaments. We ask, O Lord, that you would please continue to shine the light of your illumination upon our hearts and minds as we continue in our study. And as we gather together to worship you in a few minutes. We ask that you would be with us and strengthen us for that great enterprise enterprise of worshiping uh, a holy and eternal God. We pray these things as well for your glory and for our good. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody.